Heavenly Father, it's cold outside, and we are grateful for the warmth that is here, both physically and spiritually, as you warm your hearts, our hearts, through your word. And I pray you do that in an ever-increasing manner today, as this familiar story is brought to our attention once again, so that, Lord, we would be your people, and you'd be glorified in each and every one of us as we seek to follow you. Take our minds now, think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in the third week of the Epiphany season where we're continuing to see Jesus revealed in Luke's biography. We have seen the 12-year-old boy Jesus sitting at the rabbi's feet. And they marvel at how much he knows. <laughs> he's God, you know, sitting at their feet and he's asking them questions beyond his years. Well, of course he is. He's Messiah. We saw him being baptized. And upon his baptism, the Trinity, God in his fullness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descended upon him. This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. He was pleased in retrospect. In the faithful 30 years that he had walked with his father, and he's pleased with what he's going to do as he launches his ministry now. We saw last week in the lineage of Jesus that there's no mistakes here. That God in Jesus Christ is our second Adam. That he is the Adam that was supposed to be the first Adam who gave us all this illness. You're infected. Get over it. Right? And we need a Savior, and God has given it to us in Jesus Christ. That's where Luke has taken us over these last month or so. And so today we arrive in chapter 4. Oh, but wait! Why are we starting at verse 14? If you open up your Bibles, you'll notice, oh my goodness, we're skipping the temptation. You can't skip Scripture. We're a Bible people. Wait a second. This is the lectionary. All right? And the lectionary leapfrogs intentionally, okay, because that text is not a revealing text. That's a Lenten text. Because in Lent, we are smacked upside the face with the reality of our sin and the temptations which we succumb to. And so we're going to get back to Luke 4, 1 through 13, my friends. Oh, it's coming and you're not going to like it. Because, but you will, because we're going to see Jesus conquering our temptations, all right? So just, just hang with me and trust the process, because there'll be weeks where we'll pick up where we left off, and there'll be weeks where we leapfrog according to the church calendar to keep the themes of the church calendar, which the early church set for us, to keep us to make disciples who make disciples that bring personal conversion, who make other disciples meet the needs of the community and thus bring revival. Amen? That's why we're here. Okay? So having said that, what we're going to do today is look at verse 14 and forward as Jesus goes home. And we're going to learn some amazing truths. What you have here in this scenario, in a typical synagogue they would invite one of the rabbis of the community to read, choose a text, and preach. 
And so the congregation in the ancient synagogue would be standing and the rabbi would sit and teach. Can you imagine standing for the better part of an hour? You know, but that's what they did. There were no seats in the synagogue. The only seat was where he sat. But he sat to teach. Now, Jesus, since his ministry with John the Baptist and his baptism, John said, follow him. Don't follow me. He's the one. So this crowd has been building all along the way. And so what happens here is that as he sits and reads, Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he chooses Isaiah 61, which Iris read for us this morning. Isaiah 61. Verses 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so, Jesus chooses this servant of the Lord text from Isaiah. Now, the servant of the Lord is a mysterious figure in Isaiah. He's someone who's predicted he's going to come and put everything right. Someone who's going to come and bring God's kingdom and bring justice and peace. The servant of the Lord is going to come and make a new kingdom for us all. So he reads the servant of the Lord passage. He sits down and it's his job to explain it. So all eyes and ears are fixed upon Jesus and they're waiting for a long half-hour sermon and he gives them one sentence. Don't get any ideas. (laughs) If only I could be that concise. But here's the reason why it's so short and why. Jesus says, today, verse 21, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which means, I am he. I am the servant of the Lord. I have come. I'm here. I am the sermon. That's all you need to know. And so, when you understand the great truths of these first 14 verses, now this is part one. Because next week we're going to go to part two of this chapter, which is a, a different, different nuance that's going on in this passage. And so we're going to see in this whole passage, verses 1 through 14, if, you, if we understand that, we'll truly understand that not only do we have salvation, but we receive the Holy Spirit and we can walk in the fulfilling life that we're called to live in. But what we see in this passage in its entirety, verses 1 through 14, is the priority of community worship, who the good news is for, and how it's typically received. All right? The priority of community worship, who the good news is for, and the typical reactions to how it's received. Let's first look at the importance of community worship. Starting in verse 14 and beyond, he's going around the surrounding country, he's teaching in all the synagogues, and obviously he comes home to Nazareth, where, in verse 16, it was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. 
in that day, I want you to imagine this. Here is our Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, going to the synagogue where the Pharisees and scribes who would shout crucify him three years from now were the ones who were leading the worship. You know, would we go with guys like that leading? Probably not. But here's our Lord. Here he is because he's recognizing what this day represents among his people. It was the place where his father would show up as his word was read and preached. And as such, he thought he would do it honor. And I think it's a good thing. And I know I'm preaching to the choir today, right? Because you guys are all here. And I know, but it keeps coming back to us, doesn't it? It just does. That those who are Christian, Jesus would have us know that we're not to take lightly the gathering together on the Lord's day. Where the word is faithfully preached and the early church began administering the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take communion today before our annual meeting. Because we are his people. Lifeway research statistics say that the typical professing Christian today in America, this is Lifeway, which is very reliable research, by the way, that the most faithful Christian in America makes gathering with the church on Sunday, the Lord's Day, three out of four times a Sunday a month max. They miss one out of four Sundays, in other words. So 25% of the time, they're not here. And so I think it's no wonder that we're, the world is having a difficulty telling if there's anything different in our lives about what we believe. You know, i got to be honest, if everyone who was on our rolls on Sunday morning actually came, this space would be too small for us. We'd have to move across the street to Erie View. That's the plan if they tarry. You know, we're going to talk about that at our annual meeting, by the way. But the reality is, of course there's some people who work on Sundays. I get that. Of course there's some who are sick. Of course there are those who are increasingly frail and can't get out, especially in the dead of winter. Why do we sing in the bleak midwinter during Christmas? We should be singing it in January and February. It's bleak now! Right? The Christmas tree's down, you know? No, this is, I sing that all January and February because I need it. And of course there's those who are out of town for various reasons. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not there to judge people. But those aren't who Lifeway is speaking about. Lifeway is talking about those who are just taking a break. They stayed up late last night watching Netflix and they're just tired. You know, that for whatever reason they're not here. Because they don't understand how much Jesus loves them. If you were not to show up one out of every four days at work, what would happen to you? Is, as I was a teacher, if a kid didn't show up one out of every four days, that's 25% of the time, that means the student would miss 45 days out of 180 a year. In Maryland, if you miss 20 days of school, no matter what reason, you you were brought in for intervention. The parents were brought in. And we had some students 
who were charged legally with neglect. And the children were taken away from them. <laughs> because they missed more than 20 days. Well, 25% is 45 days. And that's what missing 13 Sundays a year because, you know, I stayed up watching Saturday Night Live or whatever it is that I'm doing on Sunday mornings. It's just not that important to me. I don't get much out of it. Well, hold that thought. Just hold that thought. But the reality is we need to reevaluate according to the Word of God. Why, do we, why, do we, why are we here? Quick review, class. Number one, cease from your work. No work today, you workaholics. You're a follower of Jesus. Nothing. You're going to be tempted. Don't do it. Give it to the Lord. Just give this 24 hours from sundown on Saturday to sundown on Sunday to the Lord where you're not going to work and you're going to rest. Two, which you guys have done. Great job. Come to the assembly and let the word of God feed you well. And when we have supper, Lord's Supper at the 11 o'clock service, let his mercy and grace through the bread and wine feed your soul that you are his beloved child. We all need that reminder. We do it weekly at 8 and 9.30. They're worse, I guess. I'm kidding. But the point is, we see some more work, we gather together and let the Lord speak to us through his word. It's all throughout the scriptures. Nehemiah 8, I encourage you to read that text. God's people hadn't heard the word read for generations. But they rebuild the wall. Nehemiah tells Ezra the priest, stand up and read God's word. They read God's word from morning till noon. And the assembly just starts to weep. They've never heard it. They've never heard it. For 70 years, they, they didn't realize. They thought they were right with the Lord, and then they realized they really weren't. So they break up into small groups of 20 or 30, and the, and, the, and the Levites are saying, stop crying. This is a celebration. Go home and party. This is good news for you. You see, this is what the Lord's word does to it. It encourages us. It convicts us where we need to get our, our lives right because there's no perfect people here, right? None. But in Christ, we're righteous and we follow and as we gather on the Lord's day, that's exactly what happens. And third, we meet people's needs. Jesus met needs all the time on the Sabbath. If he really wanted to tick off the Pharisees, he would do a healing on the Sabbath. And that's what we do. We minister to one another. Some of you need a hug. Some of you need prayer. Some of you need just an ear to bend. Some of you are doing great. Well, then avail yourself to one another. Don't just run out of here. You're not going to find that in this book, that type of Christianity. It doesn't exist. And I know some of you are introverted, you know? Just turn and shake the hands of the, of the visitor. Shake the hands of the person next to you. Introduce yourself. Stretch yourself a little. But that's what the Lord's Day is for. And we go minister that mercy and grace to others outside this body as we're given opportunity. You see, the reality is I need you. You need me. And in this individualistic culture that we live in, people always trying to make the Christian life into what, to fit their agenda, Jesus comes along and says, oh no, I'm Lord, follow me.
my agenda for you. Because what the world is teaching you, what your flesh is teaching you, and what the devil is teaching you is false. Follow me. Secondly, what we learn here is the gospel is, who is it for? Well, according to Isaiah and to our Lord who inspired it, it's for the spiritually poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. He's teaching that he only comes to people who are willing to admit that they're spiritually poor. You know, I think we should observe that in these verses, the striking account that Jesus gives to the congregation in Nazareth, if he's the servant of the Lord, look at his office and his ministry among them. He chose this passage and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, it's the year of Jubilee of the Old Testament. Freedom! All debts canceled. And so he reads this prophecy and he told the listening crowd that he himself is Messiah. And we may well believe that there was a deep meaning in our Lord's selection of this passage because he desired to press this upon them because he well knew that they were looking for a temporal king. He knew what their expectations were and he would have them understand that they were absolutely wrong. We want a conquering hero. He came to conquer our hearts. He came to transform us by the renewing of our minds. And that this Messiah's kingdom was going to be a spiritual kingdom over the hearts of all the human race. Because his victories were not over worldly enemies, but over our sin. And his redemption would not be from the power of Rome, but from the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it only comes to those who are willing to admit they're poor. There's not an ounce of pride in them when it comes to their relationship with the Lord. It comes to those who admit that they're blind. Those who recognize they need the spiritual glasses of God's word to guide them. It comes to those who are captive those who are imprisoned by the meaningless lifestyle that they're caught up in. And therefore, it's God's strategy for us. And when we recognize those things, we have the Lord's favor. It's not my favor. It's not what I've done. It's what he gives me in Jesus Christ. Eric McTaxis is one of those who have his favor. Many of you have read his books. He wrote a great book on Bonhoeffer. He wrote a great book on Luther. He didn't grow up a Christian. He grew up in a Greek Orthodox home that assumed they were, but all it was, in his words, was kind of a country club Greek club. You know, his dad taught him they'd be following a car. You'd see the ichthus on the back. He'd say, oh, look at that. That's Greek. It's kind of like my big fat Greek family. You know that movie, Greek Wedding? You know, the father, everything, everything originates with Greece. That was Eric Metaxas' dad. So, oh, did you see that fish? That's some grease. It's an ichthus. It means Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Savior. He had no clue what he was saying. So as Eric grew up, he was a smart kid. He loved his Greek identity. He loved words and writing and, and looking at the deeper meaning of life. And he also loved to fish. He lived in Danbury, Connecticut. And he grew up, he went to Yale, smart guy, all right? 
And while at Yale, he just couldn't buy any one true way whatsoever. And he viewed our quest to any type of spirituality in God as a frozen pond. That the ice is our consciousness, and God is the water beneath the, the unconsciousness that we can't quite figure out. And the best that we can do in life is drill a hole through the ice to get to God. That was his belief. So he graduates from Yale, and he gets a job uh, as a freelance writer writing for the Atlantic Magazine. It was a good gig for about a year. He wrote some articles that got great reviews. He wrote for several magazines as a freelance writer. And then the well ran dry. If any of you have done such work, you know it, that can happen. And so he decided at 24 that he would move home. And like my parents, and like Kimmy's parents, his parents told him, it's not that we don't love you, we just don't want you to live here. <laughs> because you need to carve your own way, son, and get a job. Okay, because the freelance work isn't working out, find something. So he got a tip and he applied to be a proof writer for Union Carbide, a proofreader, which in his definition is Aramaic for hell. You know, so he proofread all the, the, these business guys, how they could be interpreted to write. I guess, I guess that's what he did. But along the way, he met a guy named Ed Tuttle, who worked in the graphic arts department. Ed was a Bible-believing Episcopalian that went to St. Paul's Darien, where Martin Minns, my, my rector at Truro, came to faith in Jesus. Terry Fulham was the rector. Ed went to St. Paul's, which is now Trinity Church Greenwich, by the way, and it's just booming. Just, just Google it. Trinity Church, Greenwich, Connecticut. Amazing, amazing place. So Ed's, a, I think he's still a member there. Ed is there and working in the graphic arts. And you know, he was an Episcopalian. He thought, well, he's a professing Christian, but he's not one of those. But he was one of those. Because he knew the Bible inside and out. You know, as a graphic artist. And so Eric... Metaxas felt safe asking him questions. They got in great spiritual conversations and, and formed a friendship over the year. Until suddenly, Eric's dad, not his dad, his uncle got cancer. And it rocked his world. Because there was no greater, finer man in his life than his fishing buddy, uncle. His uncle walked through his whole childhood with him, and all of a sudden, he's got life-threatening cancer, and Ed Tuttle says to him this amazing phrase, Eric, would you, would, you, would you mind and would you give me permission to pray for you and your uncle? And Eric said, absolutely, you can pray for me. But what he was thinking was, you actually believe in a God who answers prayer. You, you believe that. You really do. And so over the year, as he's reaching 25, what's happening there is he's hearing of this group of people who are really praying for his uncle really praying that God would move in their lives, not promising healing at all, but just praying for him. Praying for healing, but entrusting him to the Lord. And Eric McTaxis was blown away by that. Absolutely blown away. Couldn't fathom that. Never seen anything like it. And one Sunday in the lunchroom, when nobody was there, Ed said, you know, Eric, can we pray right now? And it's the first time in his life he closed his eyes as Ed led a prayer for his uncle, for Eric's family, 
and for Eric. And then later on that week, as he lay sleeping in the middle of the night, a dream came to him. Eric found himself in this dream on a beautiful sunny winter day on a frozen pond, fishing through the ice. When all of a sudden this fish jumps through the ice and he catches the fish in this dream. Now, that doesn't normally happen when you fish. But this is dreams, right? But this fish was a golden fish. And it was a beautiful fish and a vision. And as clear as day, he knew God was speaking to him that your identity is not in the ichthus. Your identity is not in seeking to go down to find me. I'm coming up to find you. Repent and trust in me, Jesus Christ, your Savior, your God. So he goes back to work the next day. He goes, hey, Ed, I had this dream. He tells Ed the dream, and Ed wisely says, well, what do you think that dream means? I think I need to repent and believe and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Ed goes, great, let's do it. Let him in a prayer. And today, he's one of the finest Christian authors of our day writing great biographies. If you've never read Bonhoeffer or Luther, I encourage you to do so. My mother, who struggles with her faith, loves Eric Metaxas's books. So I want to encourage you. That's a changed life. That's what happens. He recognizes poverty. He recognized he was captive. He was recognized that he was blind, and it all came off. What's your story? Let's recognize that we are all called to admit that we are poor, blind, and captive. Finally, what we learn in here is what the typical response to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord truly is, and we ought not to be surprised by it. You know, and I really didn't recognize this until I was studying it this week, but at verse 22, you see it, and I just kind of always passed over it. Well, in this synagogue in Nazareth, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? This guy, that's Joseph's boy. He's the carpenter, right? They're not offended. They're not upset. They're not shocked. They don't say, who do you think you are? Servant of the Lord? Messiah? They're happy. Well, why is that? Because they had a grid. They had a way of understanding this text and hear how they understood it. They thought to themselves, we're good people. We're moral people. We come together every week. We believe the Bible. We're good God-fearing Israelites. We try our best to obey God, and we live under the thumb of foreign power. They're bad people, immoral people, pagan people, idol worshipers. And one day the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, will come and what will he do? Well, of course, he's going to lead the good people to triumph over the bad people. We're the prisoners. We're the oppressed. We're the poor. We're the captives. We're the blind because they plucked our eyes out. 
Therefore, when he comes, he's going to come and save us. So when they hear Jesus say, I am he, and they say, well, that's Joseph's boy. He's the carpenter's kid. All right, good enough for me. Let's go. That's what they're thinking at this stage. And so Jesus at this stage knows they don't get it at all. They don't understand this because they like his sermon. They're going to walk out of synagogue that morning and say, great sermon, pastor. Pat him on the back. Go out to Denny's and talk about the football game. It's not going to affect them whatsoever. Because you know, don't you, eventually when you hear Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John properly preached, it's going to offend you at one level or another eventually. People like these guys who knew enough of the Bible just to be dangerous, <laughs> right? Ah, it doesn't offend them yet. Stay tuned, though. All right? But when you really hear the gospel, it'll upset you. It'll rock you a little bit. It'll challenge you. And if you've never found the good news of Jesus offensive, you've probably never heard it. Because the gospel is you're more wicked than you ever dared to imagine, but you're more loved than you ever dared to dream. And God and Jesus Christ came and paid the price that you couldn't pay upon the cross for each and every one of us, so that each and every one of us, in trusting in his work alone for us, can have eternal and fulfilling, abundant life. That's the good news. So, let us examine ourselves this day, shall we? Just take a step back. This is part one. Next week's part two of Luke chapter four. And examine ourselves on this point. Does this lead us to truly trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation and for our lives? And that everything in our lives, we run through this gospel. Every decision, every action, everything we do. It's not about living perfect, friends, because again, there's no perfect people here. But the reality is, do we get excited when we hear this good news? And does it help us to follow him in personal holiness, personal devotion, to be a blessing to one another in the world? And so forth. Because these are the fruits which such sermons produce. If they're doing us any good, they do. And so, let's pray together. That we carve out the points of discipleship. Prioritize the Lord's day among them. And all the other things that means to be a follower of Jesus. Recognize our own poverty, our own blindness, our own captivity, and once again trust in him alone in the year of the Lord's favor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you that you intervene in our lives in the person and work of Jesus Christ and you declare the year of jubilee in him and that 
the fulfilling and abundant life that you have for each and every one of us is found in a walk with you. We pray that it would be so for us this year in 2019 like it never has before. And in so doing, Lord, we pray that not only we'd have personal revival, but church-wide revival. And Lord, that we would do life differently than ever before so that you would receive the honor and glory to your holy name and we just look back and see the wonderful tipping point that this passage has been in our lives. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.